Most of us have witnessed the phenomenon of the, of the hometown hero, like, um, like a band from your hometown that gets really popular, right? The pattern's pretty standard. <clears throat> In the hometown, there's early acceptance and excitement. That's usually followed by hometown rejection. We'll get into that in just a moment. And then possibly later acceptance again. For example, some students from this church experienced this uh, phenomenon in the very early 21st century. While a number of, we've always over the years had many students go to Oklahoma State University. While we had a bunch of students at Oklahoma State, which is in Stillwater, Oklahoma, there were a bunch of high school kids in Stillwater that formed a band called the All-American Rejects. You like the Rejects? Yeah, me too. I know, I know. It's our dirty little secret. Get it? Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> the, uh, sorry, it's one of their songs. Um, All-American Rejects became this big, big deal. I mean, people in Stillwater were going bonkers. The band was really good, and they were becoming really well-known. It was like the, the biggest thing to run out of Stillwater since uh, Barry Sanders. It was really a big deal. And, uh, and when they released this song I'm about to play you a clip from, they went to way, way up in the popularity charts. Uh, here's their first big hit of the All-American Rejects. Do you know this song? Yeah. All right, that's enough. I love it, but we'll stop. The kids were a hit. <clears throat> they were an absolute hit. But then something really odd happened in their hometown in Stillwater. They began to be rejected by the people of Stillwater. <clears throat> the band was so popular, it became, have you ever seen this? It became uncool to be a fan of the All-American Rejects, you know? That was passe. I mean, if you like that, I liked them better back when they were just starting, you know, and it was fresh, and now they're just, they're just too popular. I just don't like them anymore, right? That was, it was fascinating. And it's been the same old song. Um, around here, those of you that have grown up around here, Pantera, we saw the same thing around here, the Toadies, uh, same phenomenon. The hometown hero becomes the anti-hero immediately after they become famous. And that is very similar to what Jesus experienced when he went back and taught in his childhood hometown. Open your Bible, Mark. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Mark chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Mark, second book of your New Testament, chapter 6. And let's go to verse 1. He left there, meaning the leader of the synagogue's home where he had just done a, a wonderful miracle, came to his hometown and the disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Now you'll see in our notes uh, the headline for this passage. By the way, the notes are in the bulletin you got when you came inside. Uh, if you're here in the auditorium, if you're elsewhere, so great to study with you. Whatever platform you're on, there should be a way to access the notes. Check it out. The headline here is Jesus is rejected by his old hometown. 
His new adopted hometown is Capernaum, often called his hometown in the Gospel of Mark. He goes back to the place where he was raised, where his family lived for years, Nazareth, his old hometown, and there they were offended. Scandalizo is the term we translate offended. This is really cool. Mark is using a totally hip, cool new word here. This is a, this is a slang term. It's, it's a new word. It's made up by a Latin word uh, for, for falling on your face, put together with a really old Greek word um, for a trap. So it's a trap that makes you fall on your face. Uh, it's very similar to the idiom from the late 20th century face plant. Okay? That's, that's what scandalizo means. It, it, Isaiah actually was the first one to use the idea, way ahead of all that slang. Look at what God had Isaiah say a thousand plus or five hundred plus years before Mark. Isaiah chapter eight: You to regard only the Lord of armies as holy; only He should be feared; only He should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, He'll be a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is God-inspired poetry about the Messiah. Lord of armies, or Lord of hosts, depending on your translation, is, is the Hebrew phrase Yahweh Sabaat. It's a military way to describe the power of Messiah. Okay? Now, this so inspired Martin Luther that he included the phrase in his famous poem that we sang just a few minutes ago. We sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Look at what Luther did. He took, he took Lord of Armies and he put it in its Hebrew and said, Lord, although I think we sang Lord of Hosts so people would understand, but Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age, the same. Thank you. Okay, so that, that's really a nice way to depict all of verse 13. And then he called the whole, the whole poem, he called Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott, a mighty fortress is our God. That's verse 14, the sanctuary. Right? He's, he's doing a beautiful job of understanding what Isaiah is saying. There are only two responses to Messiah's power. He is either your sanctuary or he is your snare. That's it. Jesus is either a mighty fortress for your soul or he is the scandalizo over which one stumbles. That's what Isaiah had in mind. That's what Mark had in mind using this cool new term scandalizo. Luther depicted it really well. 1900 years after Mark, here's a more modern example. A guy named Michael Card wrote a great poem on this idea. He took that word scandalizo that we're talking about, and he developed this poem. Along the path of life, there lies the stubborn scandalon. All who come this way must be offended. For some, he's a barrier. To others, he's the way. For all should know the scandal of believing. He will be the truth and will offend them one and all. A stone to make men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And here's a quote from another part of Isaiah we don't have time to go to. Many will be broken so that he can make them whole and many will be crushed and lose their own soul. Now he wraps up his poem this way. It seems today the scandal on offends no one at all. The image we present can be stepped over. Could it be that we're like the others long ago? Will we ever learn that all who come must stumble? Close quote, all must stumble, that is, all must deal with the reality of Jesus, who is Messiah, the Lord, Sabaoth. There is salvation only in Him. He alone is to be worshipped. He only is the mighty fortress. And that makes us stumble because we all deep down want to be our own gods. A person is either broken by his need for Jesus and thus made whole, or a person rejects Jesus and stumbles into an eternity of offense. This is why Mark cleverly used the slang scandalizo. 
People in Nazareth are scandalized. As for Jesus, he's amazed. Amazed in verse 6 is the Greek althamadzin. Althamadzin uh, is a term Mark uses at least four other times in his gospel. This shows Mark's range. Okay, scandalizo is a brand new term. Althamadzin is a really, really old Greek word. It has a range of meaning from, hmm, I need to think about that, to that's insane. And, and here the insanity meeting is being employed. Jesus is astonished at their unwillingness to trust that he is Messiah. And by the way, this appears to be a breaking point. We never have any record of him ever going back to Nazareth in all the rest of his ministry. He goes to the village. Look at the text. He goes to the villages around them instead. Now, Luke's account sheds even more light on this Nazareth insanity. Um, Luke shows that the people in Nazareth, you know what they were doing? They were demanding a sign. They wanted a miracle just for them. They didn't want to take reason and scripture at face value. They knew the reality of Jesus fits the Bible, but they wanted a special sign just for themselves. Jesus refuses to do any such thing. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, not a tame lion performing tricks. David Wade of our pulpit team summarized it really nicely. He sent me a note. He said, Wayne, the Luke account of the incident, we were talking about this, the Luke account of the incident in the synagogue at Nazareth implies they were demanding a sign from Jesus. Jesus flatly refused to do miracles or signs on demand in the face of wicked unbelief. Luke 11 and Matthew 12 talk about that. Jesus is astounded. These people are insane. They know who he is. They, they know he's the son of God. What do they call him? They say, when they, when they start to turn and the voices change to this rejection of him, they say, is this not the son of whom? Whom do they say? That tells you right there. Look, in ancient literature, you never, ever, 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 ever refer to somebody by their mother's name alone. You might say that a man was the son of a man and a woman and named both their names. If you only named one name, you always use the male's name, even if he's dead. Doesn't matter if Joseph's dead. You would say son of Joseph. There's only one possible reason that you don't say son of Joseph here. And that's because you know that Joseph is not his biological father. They know that he is the son of God. They know what he's done. They know what he said. They just want a private miracle so they can control him. That's why we ask for signs. It's the same insanity that makes teenagers turn on a great local band. When it gets too famous, it's no longer under control of our hometown pressure. John Grasmick speaks to this. He says, the people of Nazareth represent Israel's blindness. Their refusal to believe in Jesus pictured what the disciples would soon experience, we'll read in just a moment, and what Mark's readers then and now would experience in advance of the gospel, close quote. In other words, we are like the others long ago. All people are. Speaking of disciples, pick them up in verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. The disciples are commissioned for work despite likely rejections. By the way, this whole thought section today, and it is one big unit, it's longish, so we're going to have to stay a bit higher in our study today. Three big ideas is all we're going to deal with in this commissioning. First, they go knowing Jesus' authority is enough. Do we? 
I hope you realize that like them, if you're a believer in Christ, you are, you are sent to do the Great Commission. Do, do we operate with confidence knowing that as people who are sent by Christ, we have all the authority that we need? When I first started uh, officiating weddings some time ago, I would use the typical formula that is in all the books. You know, at the end I would say, and now by the power vested in me by the state of Texas, I've done weddings in a whole lot of different states, but most of them are in Texas, by the state of Texas. And then it hit me one day, wait a minute. I have, if we're going to talk about vesting authority, I've been vested with a whole lot more authority than the state of Texas could ever muster. I don't care if you're the 10th largest economy in the world. You're an infinitesimal dot of power compared to what has been put within me. I have been vested by, by God himself with his authority. So now when I do a wedding, I say, by the power vested in me by the Holy Spirit. And that is more than enough. Folks, the point is, when you Christians build relationships, when you live your life, when you naturally share the good news of Jesus, you don't need anyone's permission. No one's. You are sent by the Lord of armies, Lord Sabaoth himself. We mentioned Luke's account of that Nazareth village uh, scene that preceded this commissioning. Listen to how that ended. Here's, here's, how, the, here's how it ended. Uh, Luke chapter 4. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the edge of the hill their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. They run Jesus out of their village, very likely to this extremely high cliff. They're so angry that he claims to be Messiah, so mad that he mentions blessing Gentiles that they try to kill him. Now, they fail. We don't know how, but Jesus passes right through that Nazarene community, goes on his way, and commissions his disciples. That is the power of the one who sends his followers. You go every day into your life. You go in that name. All God's people said? People commissioned by Lord Sabaoth, they also go forewarned of acceptance and rejection. You see that? This is still the case until Jesus returns. Some will accept you. Many will reject you, not because of you. It better not be because of you. Not because of you, but because you come to help in Jesus' name. And that's offensive. Just ask Samaritan's Purse. Ask them about their field hospital in New York uh, during the 2020 pandemic. That, that was a dusty foot situation. Hospitals filled. People in need. But doctors sharing in Jesus' name? Oh, that's rejected. And that is exa exactly what this text is describing. Don't misread this. The disciples are not selecting people whom they want to judge. That's not it. They are there to help all people. Only the ones who reject Jesus' people get the dirt shaken off as a testimony. Now, this, this dirt shaken off is very hard to figure out. Our sources are extremely spotty, so hold this loosely. But it appears that there is some indication that Pharisees in the period before this would use this same idea when they would go to a Gentile village. They would go to a Gentile village ostensibly to share the good news of the Abrahamic covenant that Gentiles are accepted, that they'll be grafted in through the Messiah. I don't know that that ever really happened, but that was the idea. And that when that, when that news was rejected by the people of the Gentile village, they would shake their clothes off to get the dust off and shake their dust off their feet. What they were signifying was that we have, the people of Abraham have done our part and you now stand alone before God. You have brought your pain on yourself. Okay? Jesus takes that image and, and he transforms it. The rejected people of God look like all Israeli rejects. They really do. 
But actually, they're the ones accepted by God. They're in no eternal danger at all. It doesn't matter what people do. The ones who reject them, oh, oh, they're in big trouble. Now, please don't misunderstand. Jesus' followers are not sent to be primarily concerned about how they're received. That's really not the big deal. The big deal is to work. They go to work. Look, look at verses 12 and 13. Go back to verses 12 and 13. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. They preached. Preaching is hard work. Preaching requires scholarly preparation. It requires pointed application. It requires speaking, speaking in an understandable pattern. Insert joke here. Maybe someday Wayne will do that. Uh, um, Jesus drove out, his people, his followers drove out demons. That's hard work. It's especially hard because it involves using authority in a way that can easily be warped into a strange circus. We're going to see demon-centered circuses later in the New Testament. There's no hint of that here. No showmanship. They just do what they are sent to do despite a reality of misunderstanding and rejection. And by the way, that is still the task for every person whom Jesus calls. Your task is to keep going despite the reality of misunderstanding and rejection because it is everywhere. When Shufoot uh, came to faith in Jesus, Shufoot is a chief, was a chief, he's passed away now, of the Yanomamo people um, in the Amazon jungle. When Shufoot came to faith in Jesus, he was so excited. He, he grew in Christ, he began to learn, he began to grow, and, and he began to understand more and more of what was going on in the outside world through his engagement with his missionary friends. And he realized that the United Nations was at that time, and in fact still are, trying very hard to get the South American countries um, to block missionaries from coming in to, their, to the Amazon basin. And Shufoot asked, why? why in the world would we, they want this? So they gave him a copy of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which here's just one little quote from it. These people should be left alone lest their indigenous culture be destroyed. Sounds kind of noble, right? Listen to Shufoot's response. What? What? Do they think we like suffering under demonic powers? Do they think we like being separated from the Messiah? Do they think we like living under continual war with fleas and short life? No, no one could think that, said Shufoot. No, they must hate us. There is no other reason to stop the missionaries. They must hate us. Close quote. The world certainly does hate, but Jesus' missionaries go anyway. They preached they drove out demons, and they anointed. Now, key in on anointing for a minute. This term is often misunderstood. There are two meanings for the idea of anointing. There are two ways that oil was used in the eastern Mediterranean. One was medicine. All medicine, all meds were transmitted via olive oil. It was the, it was the petroleum jelly of the day. That was what you used to make all medicines was olive oil. Uh, so in the New Testament, uh, nearly every time you see the word anoint, if you look at the context, it carries the idea of delivering medicine. The other idea, the, the second way of oil and anoint, is revelation. Every single time you see anoint in the Old Testament, it has to do with the idea of knowledge being imparted, something being revealed to the people who are involved. The oil is, is merely a, a means to reveal some knowledge. So let's do some examples. James chapter 5. James chapter 5 says, um, "...having applied the oil, have the elders pray on one, over one who is sick." Now, it's a it's an aorist tense participle when it says apply the oil, which means, even though it doesn't read this way in English, it means that's something you do first. So it says before you have the elders pray for somebody who's sick, you do all medical means necessary. It's talking about medicine. 
You do everything medically necessary, and then if that doesn't work, you, you pray for the people. All right? But in uh, 1 Samuel, when, when Samuel finds young David and brings him in from the field and anoints him as king of Israel, there's no medicine involved there. That's the other idea. This is knowledge. Jesse and his family are going, what? The runt of the litter is going to be king of God's people. There's, this is knowledge. Their whole world is changed. Fascinatingly, and I find this so intriguing, Mark 6 is the only passage I can find that employs both meanings. They're separated by an and. They anoint, they, they impart knowledge, in this case about Jesus, and they heal people physically. And by the way, I find it intriguing that their eternal life knowledge is more important than the physical healing because it's listed first. Bottom line is, these followers worked. They took their commission seriously. Do we? What, whatever our occupation, do we work heartily for the Lord? Are we faithful even in the face of serious rejection? By Jesus' empowering authority, we can be just as they were here. All God's people said, amen. amen. May it be so. Speaking of rejection, look at the headline on the right side of our notes. Uh, John and Jesus in their ultimate rejection. Go down to verse 17. Verse 17 where John is apprehended. And we'll come back to 14. Just go down to verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he'd be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter, her name was Salome, by the way, when she came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner, and he came and beheaded him in prison. Brought his head on a, he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Do you know why New York City officials complained about Samaritan's Purse operating a free hospital for people in need? Here's why. It's very simple. Franklin Graham's organization has the gall to declare that they agree with the Bible about sin. That's the same issue behind John's arrest. There's some historical context that I think we need if we're going to really understand here. So look at the map that I put in your bulletin. If you, if you don't have access to the bulletin, you can just look. They'll, they'll show you the screen. Herod the Great dies, okay? Herod the Great. And, and the, the cobbled together lands that he had overseen under the name of Rome were divided as follows. Uh, Archelaus was his... Um, his oldest remaining son, he'd killed most of them, and, uh, and he was given this area right here, which was the homeland of Herod, and then a bunch of land up around here. Uh, 
Philip was given this area up here, Bashan, uh, and that area. It, it should have been, could have been a very wealthy parcel, excellent land for raising cattle and for agriculture it is to this day. But at the time that our story takes place, there was a pretty serious war going on between the Parthians over here and the Romans over here, and, and this area was fairly unstable. The Decapolis were the quasi-free cities. Uh, we mentioned those in chapter 5. They, they, um, they, were, they were Greco cities, uh, very Greek in their thinking and talking. They had some semblance of autonomy. Uh, by the way, they became an inspiration for nearly every fantasy novel. seems like every fantasy series has the free cities, and, and they're under an authority. That, that comes from right here. Now, this little area in gray, this is what Herod, uh, Herod's son Herod ruled. We call him Herod Antipas to keep them separate from Herod the Great. Now, this area doesn't look all that wealthy, except <laughs> this turned out to be the biggest prize of the whole thing. Here's why. There is a major highway to this day called the Way of the Sea by the Romans that runs right through here, and he could tax that land right up there at Capernaum. When the main road comes through, he could tax all the traffic that came through that land. Same thing right here. There's the King's Highway, still runs right there along the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to Petra and the Nabataean traders down here, and he could tax that. So that's the situation. Now, Herodias was married. Herodias, the lady we just read about, woman we just read about. She's no lady. She was married to Philip. That's no lady. That's both her wife. Um, Philip was the half-brother of Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas was himself married when the story begins. He was, he was married to the daughter of those Nabataeans. They're off the map down here. If any of you have ever been to Petra, that was the head of their kingdom. Uh, Aretas IV was a very powerful, the strongest non-Roman guy in the whole area. And Herod Antipas was married to her. Realizing that Herod Antipas was getting rich on trade and he was going to be more powerful than Philip, Herodias crafted a scheme that is straight out of a soap opera. It's just amazing. She convinced Herod to divorce his wife under Roman law. Not Jewish law. There's no such thing as, as divorce that he could have done under Jewish law. But Roman law was no fault. Anybody could divorce any sex. Anyone could divorce any time for any reason. So he divorced his wife. Herodias divorced Philip. And she married Herod. Now this left Herod Antipas in a really weird state. This commanding woman wanted to build with him. But... In submitting to her and joining with her, he had angered the most powerful king in the area, Aretas IV. Now, John comes along teaching Scripture plainly, clearly. Herod's intrigued. Everybody was intrigued by John's teaching. But John's teaching makes Herod even more nervous because John teaches biblical truth that divorce is wrong, adultery is sin. John doesn't care about Roman law. He speaks God's law. Herodias just like nearly every modern American, Herodias will not put up with her activities being called sinful. That's not acceptable. In fact, Mark uses another great slang term to describe Herodias' attitude. Mark's range is just remarkable. Um, he says that she has toward John enecho. Uh, it's a broad term for having something inside. Now, when it's used like this, it means to have hatred inside. We still use this in some ways. We'll say, he's really got it in for her. You know, he's got it in for that guy, right? That's, just, that's where this comes from, right here. She has got it in for John. She gets her chance, has John martyred. That's what powerful people do when they don't like what you have to say. Especially if what you say is from God's word. They have it in for you. Her husband, by the way, is just as guilty. Do not let Herod Antipas off the hook here. Nothing John did or said justified capital punishment under the law. He, Herod 
could and should have denied Salome's request because it was illegal. By granting her request, he placed himself above God's law. Now, all that was a flashback. Let's jump back up to real time. Verse 14. Go back to verse 14. Back up where you were. Where you were. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are working him. Others said, he's Elijah. So others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. Jesus is utterly misapprehended here. Herod Antipas hears about the miraculous activity of Jesus and the twelve he sent out. His overactive, scheming brain completely misses the truth about Jesus. There are all kinds of rumors flying around. He's the promised reappearance of Elijah. Not true. He's resurrected John the Baptizer. Also not true, but absolutely terrifying to Herod. Herod Antipas, here's the big deal. We see this through his whole career. He refuses to deal with the real Jesus. Instead, he tries to make up his own version of who Jesus is. We see this throughout the Scriptures. At the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, Pontius Pilate takes the arrested Jesus and he sends him to stand trial before Herod. It's a sham. There's no trial at all. All Herod does is he keeps trying to scheme and get Jesus to do a miracle for him, show him some sign. He wants Jesus to perform for him. Jesus refuses, just as he did back in Nazareth. Herod then mocks Jesus. He treats Lord Sabaoth with contempt. Aren't you glad we're not like that? We, we never try to force Jesus to fit in with our ideas or our fears or our desires. We never ask him to perform for us like a, like a tame lion. We don't ever make up a fifth gospel. You know, Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, and then Jesus the way Wayne wants to depict him. Right? We don't do that. Listen. Listen very carefully. We have to fight this inherent evil tendency that human beings have to want to remake God in our image. Stop forcing Jesus to perform in your circus. Quit being self-righteously offended all the time and instead get to know the scandalon of believing. Trust Jesus for who he really is. And here's who he really is. Even facing rejection, Jesus offers acceptance. That is the truth covered in the rest of the chapter. It starts when Jesus feeds people. Go to verse 30. Verse 30, go there. The apostles is where we left off. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught when he sent them out. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving, recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, and it's already late. Send them away so they can go on the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I love this. Jesus said, You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Three, four, four five, five, and, and two, two fish. And he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and, and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets, 12 disciples, picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand, and that's just the men. 
Jesus has compassion. So he teaches the crowd. He feeds them. Feeding people, especially in the ancient Near Eastern tradition, is a powerful statement of, of acceptance. There was a time when I was in Jordan, and I ended up in a, um, in a serious conversation, uh, stuff that doesn't matter, but a serious conversation for this, serious conversation with an Arab fellow who was very suspect of me. He knew I was a follower of Jesus, and he was very suspect of me. But as our conversation continued, he warmed to me, and he ended up making a very momentous choice. He said, let's continue this conversation. In my garden, I'll serve you tea. Now, that's huge. He took me to a beautiful garden in, in their home and, and, and served me tea. Now, when he did that, he was saying something very important. He was saying that his clan would now protect me. You see, when you feed someone, you're showing acceptance of them. As long as I remained in his garden, I was protected, and I, and I was. When Jesus feeds these people, he's declaring, according to Near Eastern custom, that they are under his protection. As long as they abide with him, they are protected by the Lord of armies. Yes, I know the miracle of the food captures our attention, and it is, it is awesome. But maybe the most amazing part of this story is the acceptance Feeding people shows acceptance. So does praying for them. Look, Jesus prays. Verse 45. Uh, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Prayer is critically important when you're facing rejection. We must engage with God when we're hurting or going into a tough situation, which is almost all the time. And I imagine that Jesus is especially praying for his young followers. It doesn't say that, but you, you got to remember this. Except for Peter, these are almost certainly young teenagers, and the text does tell us they are wiped out. You ever do an all-day project with young teens? You ever do an all-day project? Here's what you notice. They, are they, can, they can work, often they can outwork any adult for one day. One day, and then they're usually wiped. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just part of life. It's not always true, but it's usually true. The zeal and the energy that it requires to keep on working day after day, it takes longer to replenish in kids. Uh, perseverance and pace are perfected in adulthood. This is why it is so important to pray for young people. Their bodies, more importantly their spirits, can, can flag under pressure. They can get discouraged. They can develop sclerosis of the spirit, right? So, with that in mind... I have a task for you. Today our pastors are inviting you adults, all of you who are adults, to pray for our youth. We are looking for volunteers to pray for the 300 plus young people that are part of the ministry of this church. Um, and the children are just as important, but we're just talking about the youth. And here's what we'd like you to do. If you are, if you are here in the auditorium, after the service when you exit, we'd like you to go around to the kiosk in the back and sign up and get one of these sheets. You're going to receive a student's name, and you're going to pray. This will guide you how. On a regular basis, we'd like you to pray for these seven things. For them to, as Luke describes of Jesus, for them to grow in wisdom and favor with God and man. For, them, for their love, for them to grow in love, for their faith, purity, their speech, and their conduct. If you're, if you're not uh, here today and you want to do this, that's fine. That's no problem. Uh, just talk to your host and if you'll give them your email address, we will get you the information you need. You'll get a student's name, and, and the youth ministry will take care of that. If you're part of another church somewhere else, and, and I know many are, 
we, we are thrilled to grow with you, but I recommend that you do this in your community. So go to your pastor, go to an elder or a deacon at whatever local church is near you and, and ask for the name of a student. Just get a name and then you can write us and we'll send you the card of, for what we'd like you to pray. Here's why prayer for others is so important. Look what happens to Jesus 12. <laughs> this is funny. Verse 47. Here's why you pray for kids. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea and wanting to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They get to row again. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were what, everybody? Hardened. As we say in our notes, Jesus gets in the boat with his team. He did so even though their hearts were hard. They chose not to understand that Jesus is fully God. The physical world is merely his tool to use as he wishes. This is a recurring theme in Mark, by the way. The disciples are dense. Now, we know that John Mark was personally discipled by Peter. And I imagine Peter teaching him, we were so slow on the uptake. I mean, Johnny, we were so stupid. It just, we took us forever. We didn't get anything, right? Nonetheless, Jesus watches over these dumb boys from afar. He comforts them. He tells them not to be afraid, and he gets in their boat. Shipmates have a bond. And Jesus is deigning to be their shipmate, despite the pain that he surely is feeling, knowing they are rejecting the fullness of his revelation. They don't deserve his company, but he gets in their boat anyway. You ever been part of a group or a team that began falling apart? All right. Arguments get really intense. The locker room begins to separate into factions. People stop showing up. They stop giving their best. I have found that one of two culprits is usually at the root of that kind of disunity. Fear and or limited understanding of persons. Both appear in this text. And both still trouble us today. We still get consumed with anxieties, don't we? And it, is, it, it destroys our boat. We, we still hold to a bad understanding of people all the time. In fact, our age has made a science of it. We, we will call it a positive. In fact, we'll call it diversity when we're actually treating human beings as mere images of some demographic instead of image bearers of God. Instead of looking at our fears or at people differences, let's focus on Jesus. Jesus gets in their boat and calms the storm. There are six words in the original text of verse 51. Six words we reduced to, they were completely astounded. Now, the, the English is fine, but, but the Greek spews out like, like an overwhelmed witness trying to tell a story. It literally reads like this. They were exceedingly taken to the extraordinary limit by his transformation. Right? <laughs> Their hard hearts were challenged in a way they didn't expect. We don't deserve his presence. And yet Jesus accepts us and he gets in our boat as well. If you're a believer in Jesus, he promises he is with you. If we will look past our fears and our shallow understanding of people and especially of the person Jesus, we can regularly, we can regularly be exceedingly taken to the extraordinary limit by his transformation. All God's people said... All right, let's close the section. Verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. 
As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mass wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in. Marketplaces begged him that they might just touch the end of his robe, and everyone who touched it was healed. Jesus takes sickness and gives health, more acceptance. He, he accepts even the unclean, the ill, and he heals them. And he still does that today. Now, our time's different. We're, we're not exactly like the disciples, although we're pretty dense. We do have the Holy Spirit with us permanently. We don't have to run physically to go find Jesus somewhere. He's with us always. And yet, and yet this situation is still similar, isn't it? Think, think. We, we have sickness. We face rejection. We get unhorsed by the unsettling person of Messiah. We, we have the opportunity to go to work every day knowing that Jesus is more than enough, and yet we're scared of doing so. And Jesus meets us right here. He prepares us. He sends us. He feeds us. He gets in the boat with us. He heals us. He takes our sickness and gives us health, especially spiritual health. All God's people said, I can only think of one response that seems appropriate for that. And that is to kneel in gratitude in Jesus' presence. If, you, if, you are, if you're able and you wish, I invite you to kneel with me right now. I'd love to have you come up here and join me here. You can kneel right where you are. You can just stay seated, whatever you wish. But let's spend some time with the Lord. And, and I think kneeling can be a great help to that. As you kneel, start with this. Confess to God that, uh, that it is true that you do not deserve him in your boat. <laughs> if you're in a really dark season right now, you probably see your boat as horrible and ugly and filthy and, and your life is not even good enough for you. And yet, the God-man Jesus, that's right where he wants to be. And if you're on top of everything, you feel really great about your life, you think your boat's pretty awesome. <laughs> Look at it. This is Lord Sabaoth. None of us are worthy of his presence, but you're right. You're right where he wants to be. Thank him for that. Confess your fears. What are your storms? What, what, um, what are the fears that are causing disunity in your world? Not other, not other people's fears, your fears. Confess to Jesus the ways you have been misapprehending other persons as well, treating them like demographics instead of image bearers of God. But especially confess how you have misapprehended Jesus, making up that fifth gospel, trying to get him to perform for you. Confess to God the ways in which you have not been faithful. These disciples were ludicrously dense, and yet in this past, they really were faithful. 
they went and worked. And we sometimes don't. Ask God to give you faithfulness even in the face of strong rejection. To empower you through the Lord of hosts, through the Holy Spirit of God. And listen, if, you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, God loves you. You cannot, you cannot clean up your life. You can't earn your way to God. It's foolishness. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. It is through trusting Him and Him alone that you're saved. Jesus died on the cross and He rose from the grave so that if you trust Him, you get to follow Him in everlasting life. Believe him. Believe who he really is. The Messiah. Lord Sabaoth. Put your trust on Jesus right now. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, please indicate that on the card or with your host online. Father, I want to thank you for all these Christians, new and old, and ask you to encourage us that we might receive and exult in the acceptance of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.